You are listening to Digfin Vox. Digfin is an online media group covering the digital transformation of financial services. Our podcast comes to you twice a month from our base in Hong Kong, Asia's leading financial center, where East meets West and developed markets meet the emerging consumer. Go to our website, www.digfingroup.com, so you don't miss out on our in-depth daily stories on how your clients and competitors are changing their business models across asset management, banking, capital markets, and insurance. Your podcast host is James Lindsay, and this is the voice of tech innovation in finance. This is Digfin Vox. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Digfin Vox. I'm James Lindsay, your podcast host. Today, I'm joined by James DiBiazio and our mainland China correspondent, Karen Lai, to talk about disruption within custody and cross-border renminbi payments using blockchain. On the event side, uh, we're going to the Supercharger Fintech Accelerator Demo Day this coming Friday, which is held on the floor of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Um, we extremely interesting event. They will be showing the astonishing progress made by their 10 fintech companies in the 2018 cohort. More information on this can be found on our homepage and in our newsletter. I'd also put in a plug on June 7th, there is an event by the education group Kaplan uh, here in Hong Kong. Uh, they're looking at stuff around robo-advisory and how to rank and compare robos, and there'll be uh, a good lineup of speakers of robos, bank distributors, and uh, and I'll be moderating, so oh, come brilliant. on by. That's very good. So we've got events from Thursday and Friday for you. So, James, what's wrong with the custody model as it stands? Well, I mean, first, so what? it might be worth explaining roughly what a custodian does, uh, and then we can then address their pain points. Every every investor, every asset, professional institutionalized asset manager or owner of assets, like a pension fund uh, or sovereign wealth fund, they need to safe keep their assets, right? They, they also need to put it in the bank, in a vault. Custody is literally taking custody of somebody's money on their behalf uh, in a fiduciary way and safekeeping those assets. In the old days, that meant literally sticking in a bank vault. Yeah. Uh, these days it's all digital, uh, and it has been since the 90s. Um, the, the, the custodian core custody, safekeeping, and then also they do f- accounting, fund accounting for mutual funds. They cut the NAV, the net asset value, every day. This is very commoditized. But then because at the global level, the biggest custodians hold trillions of dollars under custody, so there's a lot of value-added services that they do uh, on behalf of the customers. That um, that earns everybody uh, uh, revenue. So it's a very unglamorous part of financial services, yep. but it's it's a very steady and for the top players lucrative and important business. And of course, it's critical to the the buy side because it's the the safekeeping of of their of the assets. Sure. I mean, is there any real differentiation in what these guys do? At the ver- I would say core custody. No, it's a, that's it's, just, it's a that's just the holding of yeah, data. The holding, a, yeah, holding of the assets and, and keeping basic records uh, and, and accounts. Uh, everybody does that. There's generations worth of systems, both IT as well as processes around how to do that. Uh, and that's, that's become commoditized, and it has been for some time. Uh, but then custodian banks tend to differentiate in other ways by the markets they serve, whether or not they are 
sort of above the fray, just serving uh, at, at a global level, and they and and local onshore issues they feed to a sub custodian bank, whom they would appoint. Or if if your if your game is to be on the ground, uh, yeah. shirt sleeves rolled up in local markets, uh, providing local reporting, lobbying, uh, sort of being ear to the ground with re- with regard to local regulation. Um, and and some and some banks uh, do both. Yeah. Okay. So so sub um, custodians would be another bank, uh, and they would be on on the ground within different countries. But they would then ultimately feed all this all this data back to the, to back the to core the... custodian. But these sub custodians would do all the kind of local tax law and reporting right. and compliance okay. kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically how it works. Okay. Um, and how a cust- well well what what are the main pain points here? So the pain point from the custodian's point of view is that uh, although there's not that many custodians, it's a highly consolidated business and they have their own processes, they have their own systems, but it's, it's very consolidated. The issue is that the customer base is not so that asset managers and asset owners, you know, they're, they're, there's lots and lots of these, there's thousands of these. Uh, they all have their own vendor tech vendors and setups. They have their own ways of doing things. They come from different countries, so they have different regulatory reporting requirements. So you could say that the customer base is very fragmented, and the bigger customers, whether it's a giant asset management complex like a BlackRock or a Fidelity or a Franklin Templeton, or if it's a large hedge fund, uh, or which, uh, which has a very different kind of need, or if it's a large sovereign wealth fund uh, from Dubai or Singapore or China, they, uh, the, these uh, large clients really demand to have things done their way. Uh, so the custodians have to spend an awful lot of time and cost in that client management, client servicing side of the business, which they have to do because these are their most yeah. important clients. And... For the smaller clients, I, I think they tend to be, you know, it, it's a take it or leave it uh, format. But for the larger clients, they have to, and it's, this issue is especially acute in Asia, just because we have so many markets here, and they're all very different. Um, you know, just because Malaysia and Thailand have a border doesn't mean that business is done the same way, right? Different yeah. languages, just, just for a starter. So huge expense in, in servicing customers in Asia. Okay, and how are, how are these custodians using APIs to improve their institutional offering? Right, so this is the story that we ran on Digfin. APIs, application um, programming interfaces, uh, bits of software that allow, bits of code that allow two different pieces of software to, to communicate, is something that emerged from the consumer banking world uh, and so when we talk about open banking, in, whether it's in Europe or in Singapore or Hong Kong, what we're talking about is um, consumers, individual retail bank consumers, uh, being yeah. able to insist that a bank open up that consumer's data to a third party, say a fintech, say like a mobile wallet or something like that. Um, Banks initially resisted it, some still do, but now many have jumped on the API bandwagon. And then, of course, now in Europe, you have to. It's, it's the law. Yeah. Uh, you have to. So, and it's it, creeping in here as well. Yeah, so, and it's coming yeah. into Asia. So uh, this is just a, some background. I just want to make the point that, that we have generally associated APIs and banks at the consumer level. However, banks are also using APIs uh, to 
reimagine how they communicate and share information with, at the wholesale level. So is that with each other and with their custodians? Well, in, with... in, in this case, we're talking about a custodian, a custodial yeah. business, uh, and the way that they relate information back to their buy-side clients. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, the initiative is coming more from the internally within the banks um, than it is, I think, from a specific client demand. My, my impression is that these are bank projects. Um, Reimagining how they can pr provide clients with data about themselves, about their portfolios, their holdings, uh, the way that they provide um, how they measure their performance, uh, how they put together their reports for their own regulators, uh, all kinds of ways that people, uh, and also f uh, information around counterparty risk. So a buy side does a lot of trades through a particular broker, and they want to have some view about that broker's creditworthiness or overall yep. derivatives exposure. You know, what am I getting myself into if, I, if this institution is my counterpart? Um, and because the custodians have so much information they have all the trade transaction information, they have the portfolio information. They have traditionally acted as the, the source of truth in this business <laughs> yeah. for buy sides. And at the end of the day, when you get your, your statement from the custodian, that's what you're meant to rely on. Um, and, at, and, and so if they can provide, if they can turn that source of truth into something even more uh, relevant to helping yeah. customers, helping investors figure out their, their risk profiles um, and, and so on, then you know, they want to be able to charge a premium for that. Okay, okay. And so I guess the aim is really to move or to pivot away from this kind of low margin processing business into kind of a data rich, high end servicing model. Yeah, absolutely. And there's two things. Part of it is they can get paid as, <clears throat> you know, core custody already is a loss leader for a lot of these businesses. Um, you have to have such scale to make any kind of money out of it. But also digital technology has the, potential of removing the need, you know, as they automate, there's internal efficiencies, but there's also things that maybe people can do better than custodians. So they've got to find new ways to remain relevant and profitable. Um, so that's yeah. where else can we charge money? And so hope they hope that at some point they'll be able to charge money for some of these valuable insight, data insight mm -hmm. uh, projects. And we talked about the high costs of servicing clients, particularly in Asia, uh, the idea around an API is instead of a, a large sovereign fund or a large asset management company insisting on the reporting being done a particular way, wouldn't it be easier if all the data was in one lake inside the, the bank and the client through an API could simply pluck the bits of data that they want at a given moment is real time or close to real time and then they can kind of DIY their own reporting. Yeah, um, And so for the custodians, this means happier clients because the clients would be able to get better information more quickly the way they want. Uh, but it also means that the custodians don't have to spend all this money creating bespoke reports uh, just for a single client or a single batch of clients. So they, they see this as, the, as, a, as a possible path to cutting costs. Okay. So will the... Given all this, will the role of uh, the custodian, will it fundamentally change or is it just kind of a little bit? Uh, custodians have been trying for many years, decades, I'd say, to always increase the value of what they do to the customer. As more and more custody and custody functions become commoditized, they've always been in a race trying to climb up the value chain. Uh, they start off 
20 years ago, custodians only dealt with the back office of a buy side. Today, they've, they do back and I'd say middle office. They, there's risk management, there's yeah. um, reconciliation, there's uh, some analytics, uh, outsourcing work they do. Um, what they'd really like to be able to do is climb all the way into the front office and be strategic uh, partners along with the client's chief investment officers or you know that level of the you know at, at that strategic level um, that's what they'd, they'd like to do um, and and I think they they see providing this kind of insight through the data that they are amassing on behalf of the client is is another way for them to, to keep climbing the ladder I think they'll always be climbing the ladder because other things yeah. change on the other side but this is where the this is how the industry evolves and this is where the, the competition will be. Okay, so can you give me a few more specific examples of, of um, projects which are going on in, in Asia within the some of the side? Some of the, the banks uh, that I've spoken with have claimed that they now have their first large institutional clients in places like Australia or Japan or Singapore that are working with them uh, on these API models, uh, but they are, they are not yet able or they're not willing or unable to, to tell me who these clients are, so I can't confirm it. I've spoken with, uh, in, in the story we did, I spoke with two large buy sides that would be clients of custodians about this. Uh, they're a little skeptical. They understand the idea around using API, um, but the underlying data that has to be collected at the custody level isn't there yet. This is according to the buy side customers. Um, I think we have a ways to go before this becomes something that will become a real a really useful tool. The custodians need to prove the value in the data, and they haven't done that yet. Uh, but they're working on it, um, and I'd say give it one or two years, and we might see uh, we might see a different picture. Okay, interesting. So f- further down the line, um, it's kind of hard with the kind of the crystal ball gazing. But will the current crop of providers become disintermediated? Will this technological Change. Uh, will will we will we need custodians in, in the future, or or will all of these changes just bring them even closer to the core of the financial system? Will they become more important? There, there, there. two, two, yeah, two yeah. completely different views. You're going to need them. You're you're always going to need custodians because they are the the point of truth. The question is, who could be a custodian? Uh, the Something like the API doesn't really shift the relationship between who's a, you know who would be a custodian. Is there a need yeah. for a custodian? It's it just, just delivering. It, it just makes it cheaper. It's, and it's delivering it in a different way, and 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 it's you know it's technological evolution. The the game changer down the road would be blockchain, because some functions of custody uh, aren't required in a blockchain in a decentralized ledger. Reconciliation is probably the the most obvious. Uh, task that could be that on a blockchain you would not need a bank to, to provide that service. That would be a lot of uh, functions that would disappear and it's possible that over time that will happen and custodians will need to find new ways to, to justify their premiums. I think we still need custodians but you know at the but they will do we need as many and you know will yeah. there be a, a shake, shake up but I think we're still some 
ways off from that. I don't think the technology is there yet. I don't think the trust in the business and the technology is sure. there yet. And whether regulators would permit it as well. That's right. So I think this is, uh, it's definitely something that is, uh, I mean, blockchain is developing very quickly, I'd say more quickly than people might have imagined even a year ago. Uh, and it's going to be an argument. Uh, yeah. We have to look at what happens. Um, and the, the test case is at whether it's DTCC, uh, DTCC or ASX, uh, see how some of these go. Um, and custodians could see, particularly on the sub-custody side, I think that you know you could see some of those functions being uh, arbitraged away by the technology. But this is still a little speculative, and yeah. uh, we're getting a little off from you know the the, the, the API piece yeah. is I think where the custodians see an opportunity for them to cut costs and create some sort of value for their customers if they can get their internal silos broken, if they can manage the data better. Um, just to give you one example of how difficult that is, any given trade has numerous counterparties. The life cycle of a trade goes through a lot of different steps and and that piece, that one trade, information about it could be divided in a, in a bank's uh, different databases all over the place. One for operations, one for trading, um, and and one for I don't know compliance. Uh, and and putting all this in one what they call a data lake, where it's one piece, one one truth about a, a transaction. Yeah. It's really really hard, uh, and especially when you're dealing with banks this, uh, of the scale that we're talking about. You know the biggest institutions in the world. So. Uh, you know, it's it, it's not easy to say, yeah, let's put it all together and, and stick an API on it, and, and then uh, uh, you know, an asset manager can just yes. plug in. It's yeah. it's not that easy. Um, but I think this is where, from the bank's point of view, this is where they see uh, opportunity, um, and and that's where they're going to put a lot of their focus. But they all have other projects going on. They they're doing their own blockchain projects. They've got other big data and AI projects. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Shane. Thanks. Hi Karen, how are you doing today? Welcome back. Hi James, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Always, always very good. So you did a very interesting story recently um, about mm. China Merchant Bank. They mm. wanted to add uh, more users to its cross-border blockchain. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about, about this? What does CMB's blockchain do exactly? So China Merchants Bank has this blockchain platform for their foreign currency and renminbi cross-border clearing. Um, they launched their foreign currency denominated cross-border clearing in February 2017. It's the first Chinese bank in China to do so. And the, they launched a yuan-dominated cross-border clearing system later that year in December. So the current version of this blockchain platform is used as a public chat room where traders can match bits and offers. Okay, interesting. So it's going from, so you mentioned in the article it was going to a kind of a 2.0 model. I mean, what, mm-hmm. what does that mean? What, is, what, was, the, what was the original mm-hmm. and what is the, the new updated version? What, what's, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. So they are currently using the 1.0 version, um, which is like a public chat room. And in the 2.0 version, they are trying to um, invite uh, some other banks to use this platform where they can transfer uh, money interbank, uh, not just inside within 
uh, China Merchants Bank. And okay, yeah, I got it, I got it. So, so between different banks rather yes. than just between their own banks across yeah. uh, from Hong Kong into mainland China. Is that, yeah, is that exactly. right? Yeah. Okay, interesting. And so, um, what else is left to do? I mean, what hasn't been achieved yet on, on this blockchain? Um, they are now using the blockchain as a proof of their settlement business, like um, blockchain keep a record of where they send the money, when they send the money, and uh, how much money they send. But they also parallel run the legacy system as a, as a record uh, together with the blockchain platform. So they are not 100% trust the black, uh, blockchain platform yet, and they also rely on the legacy system on the account uh, resiliation and checking and also the money transferring. Okay. So it's not like the money keep on chank and a smart contract can trigger the money to transfer automatically. So they still need a legacy system to do some part of the work. So it's not it's not fully automated yet. There's still humans involved within this. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay yeah. that makes sense. I mean, so why, why are Chinese banks using distributed ledger technology? What's the point? Can you just go into kind of more, more detail on this? Yeah, in this specific business, cross-border currency transferring. Uh, because before they use the DLT, they use a centralized clearing system, which involves costly process because their data center need to do a lot of account reconciliation and sending reports between each other. So in this specific business where a lot of counterparties are involved, they decide a DLT makes sense. Yeah. So after they do a three months proof of concept, they use the blockchain platform. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, how how easy would it be for these projects to attract users? Will others be making their own, or mm. will everyone be using CMBs? I mean, yeah. Is it is it going to be an easy task? Um, I think CMB now is trying to attract other banks to use his platform. Um, one advantage that CMB has is is the second largest primary processor in China's cross-border interbank payment system. All the cross-border payments need to go through this system. There are totally 31 primary participants in this system, but there are 724 uh, secondary participants in the system. So every secondary participant need to go through the primary one and then go, and then go to the uh, central database. So CMB has the base of network to distribute its blockchain platform. So, so just get, just to double check, I mean the 31 major participants, these are the big banks, right? Yeah, and then the, banks. you mentioned there were 724 smaller institutions. Yes. What, what would, those are foreign banks or are they? Uh, smaller uh, domestic banks and foreign banks because every time they transfer the money, they need to go through firstly the bigger banks, the 31 prime, primary participants and then goes to the central database. It's like a, yeah. okay. it goes through all the procedures. So for CMB, it's the second largest um, primary processors in this system. So it has the natural network to distribute it to the secondary banks and maybe okay. so on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, are, are, other, are other Chinese banks uh, mm. doing things in blockchain? Is it similar? Uh, is, it, is it completely different? What, what else is going on? I think China's Chinese banks are, are trying to develop their own blockchain in their very niche market. 
You see, um, Bank of China Hong Kong is using DLT to help Hong Kong customer to pay with credit card in Shenzhen, and Citibank and Minxin Bank are deploying for letter of credit. And Agriculture Bank of China puts unsecured loans to farmers on its blockchain. Every banks are developing their own blockchain platform for specific market, and I'm not sure whether they will try to expand their network. In the future, or it's yeah. like uh, a different islands where they will come talk to each other or communicate to each other at some point. So it's very hard to see because blockchain is in a very early stage in China's banking system so far. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, yeah, there's lots of different islands kind of emerging everywhere, and it's not all kind of joining up. So are, are these guys uh, all part of a consortium like the R three consortium which we have in the in the West, or or is it just? Mm-hmm. Everyone kind of doing their own thing. Um, I think so far there are four financial institutions are members of R three, and CMB is certainly one of them. If our audience want to know more about the R three consortium and more about China's banking system, we have many articles in our Digifin website about R three. Feel free to check it out. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. So a good, a good plug. That I mean. Uh, so what? What? What else have you? Got coming up in the next next week or two. Anything? Any interesting articles under under underway? Um, I mainly cover Chinese fintech story in Digfin. So what I'm currently writing is um an article about China's prime broker system, and then and coming um maybe coming e payment in Hong Kong. So looking forward to that. Brilliant. Me too. That sounds that sounds fantastic.、Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much, Karen. Thank you very much. I'm James Lindsay, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I am the commercial director of Digifin Group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please listen again and share it on social media so your friends can find it too. Goodbye. <laughs>